the Adoptive Mom Podcast. Adoption may look different for each family, but we need solidarity from other crazy people who took this leap. And that is what we do here. We encourage, we build up, we share the wins and losses. We lean on each other and we get through this together. Thanks for joining us. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. This is episode nine of season four and episode 57 overall. Super excited about today's episode. We're finishing up. It's the third and final episode on trauma in my series on trauma. Um, And you guys, I don't know about you, but this has been really good for me. Like just going through and talking about these things, normalizing them, validating them has been so important. And I know that it's not always like super fun to hear about, but I hope you guys are really resonating with this like I have been. And so for this episode, um, you know, in the first week we talked about NICU, so we talked about trauma disorders and babies and, you know, drug withdrawal and fetal alcohol syndrome and, uh, you know, physical abuse in utero and all that stuff. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't listened to the other two episodes, definitely go back and do that. The first one was, like I said, um, with the neonatologist, Dr. Christine Culpepper. And then the second episode, we talked about reactive attachment disorder with therapist Vance Crow. Now that one was really good for me specifically because that's something I deal with in my home. For this week, we're going to be talking about oppositional defiance disorder. And that is something I don't deal with in my home, but I have friends and, you know, people that are close to me that do struggle with this. And so I definitely wanted to include this since if we're looking at, you know, the spectrum, we have, you know, rad on one side and ODD on the other, and there's lots of stuff in between there, but I wanted to definitely cover those big umbrellas. So for the oppositional defiance disorder or ODD, we're going to be talking to Megan Taylor. Megan is a licensed professional counselor and marriage and family therapist. And although not an adoptive mom, she has a heart for kids from hard places and has trained um, as a designated TBRI, which is trust-based relational intervention educator. And she does those trainings in a lot of different facets. She's focused a lot of her counseling practice walking alongside foster and adoptive families, as well as those recovering from the impact of trauma. Um, So she definitely knows her stuff, and she was great in this episode. Before we jump in, I want to remind you guys of the three main ways to help the podcast out and get connected with me and other people who listen. So first of all, definitely rate and review. And I want to throw this in there. I did a giveaway a couple of weeks ago for people to rate and review. And the winner, Wally Vaughn, that is what they put on their review, has not come forward yet. So Wally Vaughn, I'm going to give you another week. And then I'm going to choose another winner. So, Wally Vaughn, reach out to me. You get yourself a Target Target gift card. Um, the second way is the Facebook community. You guys, there's some awesome stuff happening in that Facebook community. And it's, you know, it's not just for adoptive moms. It's for support systems. We even have some dads in there for, you know, adoptive grandmothers, like all kinds of people that listen to the podcast and want to stay connected with each other join the adoptive mom community on Facebook. And that link is in the show notes, but you can just search it. We're pretty easy to find. The last one is the email list. So go to the adoptive mom slash email, and you're going to get something from me in your inbox every Monday morning. Um, even when we're off season and I am a lot more open and raw on those emails. I, uh, share a lot and ask questions and it's easy. You can just hit that reply and respond to me. So it's a really great way to get connected with me as a host. 
Um, that is all I have for you guys. Like I said, I'm so excited for this episode. So let's jump in. All right, everyone, welcome to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. So we've been doing this trauma series, and it's been hard, but it's been really good and informative, and I'm really excited about this episode because this is something that I don't actually struggle with in my home. So this is going to be educational for me, just like it is for all of you guys, and we're going to be talking about ODD, or Oppositional Defiant Disorder, Defiance Disorder, excuse me, and the rock star who's going to be talking to us about that is Miss Megan Taylor. So hi, Megan. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? I am okay. I'm excited about this episode because like I said, I don't, I don't know a ton about ODD, but I know that that's something that adoptive parents or foster parents struggle with a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. But before we jump into all of that, just tell us about yourself and your family. Sure. Um, So I am a counselor. I've been in the mental health field for about 10 years, Um, a licensed counselor for seven. And a lot of my experience is um, in working with kids from hard places in their families. And so um, that's something that is, is important to me that I feel like is a big part of my heart and um, to see uh, the struggles that the parents and the families face is important. Um, my, my husband and I have been married for almost 12 years and we've got two boys. And so they are almost four and then six, Jack and Chase. And so we live here in Cave Springs and I currently work at Waterstone Counseling in Springdale. Nice. I like how you have Chase the boy and Chance the dog. I know, right? <laughs> when we first, uh, when Chase was born, I had a few people say, "You can't name him that; it's too close to your dog's name." So, but you yes, did. Chase and, and Chance. Fine. <laughs> but we did. We went with it. That's awesome. I think that's really adorable. So, I wanted to know you. You're not an adoptive mom, but you do work with a lot of adoptive families, and you have a lot of adoptive families like surrounding you in real life too, right? Correct. Like one of your um, one of your partners in your nonprofit is an adoptive family. One of your best friends is a is an adoptive family, and then now your sister in law and her husband are doing uh, respite care for foster families. So you have a lot of that just in your life as it is, and then you go to work every day and work with them as well. Yes, yes, it seems to be something that um, just God has placed around us in a lot of different avenues. So whether that's church or work or just our community. Um, A lot of our community has adopted or fostered. And so we've walked that journey with them um, just kind of hand in hand and alongside them as they have walked their stories out. Yeah. So, I mean, tell us about that a little bit. Did you, did you just always know you wanted to work in, in, in this sector with, with kids from hard places? You know, there are a lot of counselors, there are a lot of uh, therapists that work with, you know, neurotypical people or just people going through a hard time in their life. Um, but it takes a really special therapist to be trauma informed and to, to seek after that training to work with the hardest people. So what, what took you there? What made you want to do that? Was it just something that was, you know, a God thing or did something happen that made you say like, that's what Mm -hmm. I want to do? Um, so a big part of my story, I, uh, I worked at the children's advocacy center, um, of Benton County for several years And while I was doing that, while I was in graduate school um, to become a counselor, I went on a trip to Haiti. Um, And this was right after the earthquake happened in 2010. And uh, and so the needs were changing as quickly as um, 
you know, just moment to moment. So what we intended to originally be there to do ended up not being the most pressing need. And what was the most pressing need was helping take care of kids Mm. um, who had suddenly found themselves in a place with, uh, with no family, or maybe they hadn't been able to find their families yet in the midst of the chaos. And so um, as we walk in the first day, um, I looked and there was a, a little girl um, in, in something that looked similar to what my dog sleeps in. Um, and she uh, was eight or nine. Um, but in that moment, you know, and kind of seeing what was going around there, there were some behaviors coming out of her um, that didn't make sense to them. And so didn't make sense to the people trying to care for her. And while part of me um, was frustrated in that, like I, uh, I also felt like in that moment that God said, Megan, they can't see, mm-hmm. um, like they don't know, they can't see, they're doing the very best that they can. And, um, and so what would it be like to hand them something where they're able to deal with their own trauma, where they're equipped to, to engage the kids that they are working with, because right now they're doing the best they can with the tools that they have. And so I feel like that's kind of where my story started, um, kind of moving stronger in that direction alongside, uh, working at the children's advocacy center. Um, that was, that was something that, uh, I found myself doing for several years. And so just seeing, um, what the families walked through and walking alongside them, I felt like that just kind of grew over time. Um, and then also just noticing the community that we were in as, as you kind of referenced earlier that for whatever reason, it's like, that's just kind of where God has had us. And so a lot of our community has walked that journey. And so getting to walk hand in hand with them, um, has been a big part of that as well. That's so cool. I love how, I love how God does that though, that he, um, he seems to put, you know, your life's trajectory in exactly the place he wants it. And even if that's not something that was ever laid upon your heart growing up or, you know, whatever, that it's like everything in your path, it's just like, kids from hard places, kids from hard places, trauma. Yes, like exactly. it's just, even if you're just walking straight ahead, I love it. I love it. So, um, okay. But that brings us to something that you, you kind of specialize in. So you work with a lot of kids from hard places. We've already talked about that. Um, uh-huh. and that is like, I feel like all these different issues that kids deal with are under this huge umbrella of trauma. And that's something that eludes so many, um, just people here in I want to say America, but I mean, I think that there's lots of places around the world that just don't see a ton of that in their everyday lives. You know, they Mm -hmm. haven't had an earthquake that's destroyed everything around them, or they haven't had, you know, bombs going off in their neighborhoods. You know, that's something that we don't struggle with on a daily basis. And so it's something that trauma is just, it eludes us. We don't understand it. We don't know that, um, it can be the underlying issue for so many things. So maybe just take a second and give us like, what is your take on trauma? What is your take on just this, this umbrella of all these specific trauma disorders that we're talking about? Um, what are some of the more common, just broader types of trauma that you see in your clients every day? Mm-hmm. And so I tend to, when I think of the word trauma, um, I kind of look at it as a spectrum. And so I think that our world tends to, uh, there's a clinical definition of trauma, right? That, that it has to meet certain criteria to be called trauma in the medical world or in the clinical world, as far as there has to be a threat to, um, like bodily harm or death that either is coming at you or that you're witnessing. But when I look at trauma, um, and I look at the spectrum of it, I really see it as something that can be, it can be those big events, um, you know, as far as earthquakes or disasters or, 
um, an extreme violence situation, but I also see day in and day out how the impact of what I would call like a little T trauma or just a daily stressors and pain, mm-hmm. um, how actually how our body responds to that can over time be the same as if one gigantic traumatic uh, experience occurred. And so I think about that often um, in the sense of there's a game that I that I will play um, with kiddos a lot, and it's called uh, Thin Ice. I love it. Um, and uh, <laughs> it came out when I was a kid, but there is a um, kind of a platform that you place a tissue over the top of, and you're dropping these these wet marbles onto this tissue. And the, the point of the game is you don't want to be the one that, that makes the tissue fall through, right? right. Um, but, like, you, you can see how over time that tissue can only hold so many marbles before the bottom's going to break through. Um, and so whether I get a giant rock and I set that on that tissue and it breaks through instantly, or I have 50 small marbles that kind of build up over time on that tissue, the bottom breaks through anyway. Mm. And so, um, so when I look at trauma, as far as day to day, um, that's a picture that I have in my head a lot here. And so, um, I also think of trauma a lot of the time through a relational lens. Um, you know, when you think about levels of trauma and what can impact a person and our mind goes to uh, a natural disaster or, um, or acts of war or something like that, that we may see around the world. Um, what I see in my office or what I see day to day that actually impacts people more than anything, um, is relational trauma. Mm-hmm. And so whether when, when kids are disconnected from family of origin or when they are hurt by somebody that they love, or, um, when something unexpected kind of goes off and it, it, uh, rocks their world at home or their day to day. Um, and so when I think of, of trauma that we may see here um, more often, you know, I think that's something that I see that's that's more common um, is that relational piece. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's that's the the trauma that adoptive families experience every single day. You know, that's something that me coming in, having a wonderful childhood and a great upbringing and never having anyone close to me die suddenly or just I'm thinking of those big traumas. But you know, I adopt and all of a sudden I'm inviting trauma itself Mm -hmm. into my home. And I'm like, what is happening to me? Why am I going crazy? Why do I have no more emotional capacity? Why is this kid acting like he's being held at gunpoint? Why, you know, I don't understand. And then we're going to counselors and therapists and they are not trauma informed. So they're not explaining Mm -hmm. it. And then it's like, when you get in the position where somebody is there to tell you, and for me, it was Becca Price, who I know you work with. Um, mm-hmm. And she came to our house and it just laid it all out. Like, this is what his brain looks like. And I it just all of a sudden made sense. And again, for us, that was not oppositional defiance disorder or ODD, as I'll call it for the rest of the episode, because it's just easier to say. But mm-hmm. um, for some kids, it is that. So mm-hmm. tell us about just just overview of ODD. Um, and so ODD is defined, you know, primarily by external behaviors that you are going to see where a child is, um, purposefully defying any kind of authority figure. Um, and so that can look a lot of different ways, um, depending on kind of where, uh, where that child's at as far as in the progression of that disorder or what else is kind of going on in his world. Um, but you tend to see, a lot of uh, defiance that's, you're, again, that you're going to be able to see with your eyeballs, um, that you're going to be able to notice. And so behaviors that 
you wouldn't see um, in a child that wasn't experiencing that that are fairly extreme. And so that may be, um, you know, physical violence might increase there towards self, towards others, um, a, uh, you know, verbal aggression as well, or really anything that's just, Hey, whatever you are telling me to do, I'm not doing it. Um, <laughs> like I'm going to put, I'm going to put my foot down and I'm going to say no. And this is my stance. And so, um, it, and that tends to come out more so, in relationships with caregivers or authority figures versus peers at times as well. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I know that that can, you know, we talked about what you can see with your eyeballs. And then when we move inside of someone's body, there's like, there's what's, what's actually physically going on in their brain. Um, which is another thing I learned is that it Mm -hmm. trauma changes the actual physical, like could see under a microscope neurological pathways. So there's that, but then there's also what's going on inside emotionally or below the line, as I know that, um, it's, it's called sometimes in therapy. Mm -hmm. So, Mm um, I'll let you pick which one we discuss first. Uh, but I want to hear your take on those things too. So what we see is a kid you know, going crazy and we're in just like nonsensical disobedience. Cause I know that my friends who have children with ODD, it can be something as simple as like, here's the snack you asked for. And the kid's like, no. And so it doesn't make sense at all. And then sometimes it does make sense. Sometimes it's like, clearly a child's not going to want to do a chore, but it's the degree to which they're refusing. Um, and so it's, it's not logical and they're seeing their kid go crazy. So what's going on on the inside? And so as far as what's going on in the inside, um, when I look at ODD and what makes that make sense, um, ultimately, as you said, I think the brain structures change around trauma, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I think about trauma and how that impacts a child's brain, um, that ultimately in that place, they're experiencing that request or, you know, what, what that person is asking them to do as something that is threatening their, their survival system. Mm. Um, and so if you think about a kiddo who's come from a hard place or who's experienced trauma, we know that as our brain develops and grows, the resources go where they're needed first. And so a kid who is living underneath, um, extreme stress or trauma, especially for a prolonged period of time, which tends to be where I see ODD come forward more, um, is with kiddos who have experienced trauma over an extended period of time. Um, but their brain is like the parts of their brain that are getting all their resources and thereby growing stronger, um, are going to be those survival resources. And so if you think about, um, for example, you know, I think we've, a lot of us have heard stories about maybe somebody that, um, is blind or maybe somebody that is deaf, but yet their sense of touch or their sense of smell is heightened in a sense that it covers, um, that deficiency. And so the same thing happens in a kiddo's brain with trauma where um, what happens is their survival system gets so many reps that it's way stronger than the thinking part of their brain. And so so in that place, something as simple as, hey, I need you to, um, you know, pick up your shoes. Um, or, hey, can you walk three steps closer to me so I can hand this to you? I've had kids sit on the ground and go, nope, my legs are broken. Okay, well, you were just jumping on the trampoline five minutes ago, right? Like, your legs are obviously not broken, <laughs> And so, so what's going on there? Um, and so I think something in their system is receiving that request as a threat where their survival system kicks on. And what do they do from that place? They fight, um, they flight or they freeze. And so kids in ODD, 
um, if I frame that through that trauma lens, their fight response is really, really strong. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, which, which is, which then translates to the behavior that we're seeing. So, mm-hmm. um, what, how do you, how do you think that this, you know, when it branches off into something like RAD or, uh, or ODD, which seem to be the two main categories, I know that there are other smaller ones, you know, PTSD and stuff like that. And then we're talking about, um, drug and alcohol exposure mm-hmm. as well. But when a kid is being abused or mistreated and what, what do you think, or what have you seen to be maybe the overarching difference between a kid who goes toward ODD or a kid who goes toward rat, or is that a, a genetic predisposition? If I think about what might lend towards a, a specific diagnosis or a specific pattern of behavior between those two things, um, it's hard for me to delineate some of it because I think that sometimes they can co-occur. Mm-hmm. And so you may see where, where, where kids might respond, um, in a way that they could kind of fit underneath both of those categories. Absolutely. Um, but when I look at that oppositional defiant and I, in the kids that I've worked with, as far as what makes them, um, is there a factor that I can identify that might be different from some of the others? Yeah. Um, and I think that in that place, there is, there tends to be a situations where they have felt uh, very, very little control. Mm. Um, so very, very little control over their situation, over their circumstance, where they did not have power um, in any way to get out of where they were at. Um, and so the little girl, even that I told the story about in Haiti, um, to me, the behavior that she was displaying in that place would fall underneath that category. Um, but when I think about her story and how little little control she had over any decisions that had to do with her life or her well-being, day to day or big decisions, she had none. And so, whereas when I look at maybe um, Rad, um, I tend to see where some of those day to day things they may have had some power or control over in some way, but the attachment was pulled um, pulled from them or kind of in and out. Um, but they may have had more like more of uh, power or control over some of those day-to-day decisions in the sense of not always, uh, but in the sense of I'm hungry, like I can eat something here. Whereas a child with ODD, you know, that might be an example where it's literally, they don't have an option. They have zero control over that. Mm -hmm. No, that makes total sense. So, um, Mm -hmm. I mean, thank you. Thank you. Because that, that totally, that helps me to categorize things in my brain or just to see, um, I don't know, to see the difference of if, if we're taking the child's, point of view, you know, so often as, as, as parents, we're just seeing the behavior. We're just seeing mm-hmm. how it affects our lives and our day to day, but it, it totally helps to see this is where they're coming from, or this is where that behavior, um, I don't know, spawned out of or something like that. Yes. Um, yes. so that, that kind of brings us to what do we do, um, as parents, when we're seeing this, I think that at least for me and I, and Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are some just rock star parents. But when I see when I see behavior like that, I think I would be very angry. Like that would be my initial response is just like frustration, impatience, um, not having even the like time to understand <laughs> or think about, well, mm-hmm. this is this is what's going on in their bodies right now. Like, so what do we what do we do with that? What are the best approaches? How do you see those kids best being diffused? Mm hmm. And so, you know, I think my, my brain first jumps to just wanting to honor that response. Like, 
um, appearance in that place. But of course, like, of course, <laughs> when you, when you see a kiddo who's just been jumping on a trampoline and now they're telling you their legs are broken because they don't want to walk three steps, of course, you're going to find yourself frustrated in that place because yeah. just as I talked about, you know, these kiddos having that survival system in their brain, so do you and so do I. Um, and so of course, you know, we're going to have responses there. And so, um, my first, my first thought is just wanting to honor that and say that that makes sense. And, um, and so what does it look like to just be curious with what's, what's going on inside of you in that place as well? Um, you know, when I think about big picture diffusing kids in that place, you know, if I kind of go back on your earlier question and like, what, what delineates a kid who may, uh, present ODD versus, um, versus rad loss of voice. Um, mm. and so if there's a way for me to kind of summarize that, I think about this loss of voice. And so anything that can hand them, um, their voice back, um, over time and meet them in that place, I think ultimately is what I see start to diffuse that. Um, unfortunately, you know, as, as you've kind of talked about and how trauma, um, literally rewires the brain or reshapes their brain and how those neural pathways look and function. Um, what that means, you know, is that those, those experiences that are going to hand them something different are going to need a lot of repetition too. And so, um, handing them experiences where, man, they, they have the opportunity to succeed, um, mm. or they have the opportunity for their voice to matter. Um, and so, you know, when you look at a kiddo's brain and how are we going to ultimately change that and research will tell us that, you know, just for me to tell a kid something, it might take three to 400 repetitions for that to create a new connection in their brain. Mm, that um, sounds exhausting. <laughs> which is exhausting and overwhelming, right? Yeah. Um, and yet to, uh, for them to experience something, how do we shift it quicker experience you're looking at depending on the strength of the experience 12 or less and so for example uh, my son who's now six when he was about 18 months old continually tried to stick his finger in the outlet sockets on the wall um I felt like I was always saying Jack stop like I just told right I just told you don't put your finger in there you're gonna <laughs> get hurt like over and over and over again now did I ever hit 400 probably not it felt like I did but um <laughs> but if he's to ever stick his finger in that outlet and get shocked boom right like um like his brain is wired differently he's gonna remember that experience and something has shifted there and so, um, you know, for these kiddos that are presenting ODD, when I think about how do we hand them their voice, um, you know, I, I had a, just one example um, that comes to mind for me there. Um, I had a teacher uh, that I worked with in the, the public school system a few years back who had a kiddo with a lot of oppositional behaviors. And what she ended up doing was just kind of leaning into it and going, okay, obviously, like his voice needs to matter here. And so um, what I'm going to do is, you know, every Friday, I'm going to give him 10 minutes at the beginning of the class period. And he gets to tell the class about whatever he wants to tell the class about. Like, you know, he gets to use his voice there. Um, and so even in that experience over time, handing him something new, uh, you see where all of a sudden, you know, that defense that kind of automatically comes up from that survival system starts to slow down. 
All right, guys, I have to cut in here and remind you guys about my giveaway with Restoration Threads. It ended a couple of weeks ago, but we're going to do a discount code. However, first, let me tell you about Restoration Threads. So they are an awesome organization. They sell clothing and mainly T-shirts. And they also choose a different foster care organization to promote and donate to every single month. They are really cool. I have an interview with the founder who is an adoptive mom coming out in season five, but they are just the, the coolest organization and we definitely want to support them. Like I say, that giveaway has ended. However, just for you guys, because I love you, all of April 2019 which is when I recorded this, you're gonna be able to get 20% off anything in their store using the code ADOPTIVEMOM20. All one word, ADOPTIVEMOM20. To shop, go to theadoptivemompodcast.com slash restoration threads. Do not miss out on this. Even if you like have way too many t-shirts in your life, still go and support this. Give it away, I don't care. Go support restoration threads using ADOPTIVEMOM20. You know, what's a way that we can hand those children control, say, in like food? Because um, food can be a big issue for traumatized mm -hmm. kids. So someone Absolutely. with food insecurities, what's what's something in that category that we can say, you know what, here's a way that you have a voice that you have control? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think one thing that I have done with several families that that I feel like has, has been helpful and successful, you know, with the, with the food insecurity is even, um, okay. Like it makes sense to me that like your body needs to know that you have access to food at any time. Right. Um, you might know, you know, I've had kids where I could ask them, Hey, do you know that you have food in your pantry? Yes. And they'll list 500 things that they know are in there. Um, but it's like their body needs to know that they've got it right there. And so, okay, so we're going to pick one thing. You can choose anything that you want, you know, or, or even in that, you know, sometimes you don't want them to have a bag full of Sour Patch Kids that they always have with them, right? But, um, <laughs> and so, so giving them some options in that, but you can choose, you know, something that feels good to you, that feels safe to you. Um, we're going to put it in a Ziploc bag and you get to choose where in your room it's going to be. Um, and I'm not going to touch it. Nobody's going to touch it. And that's always going to be there for you if you need it. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's, that's one thought that comes to mind for me there where they know, um, their body knows that they have access to it. Um, I, uh, a story I read a while back and I'm working on who it was, but, uh, a famous actor or, or something had to do with Hollywood. Um, this man had gone with, uh, some friends and had gone camping in the woods and he ended up getting lost and getting, um, getting stuck on his own and for a couple of days. And so where he almost starved and as he comes out of that experience, he's a millionaire. Um, and so he has access to anything that he would ever need and food. And, um, but there was something that he said, my body needs to know that I've got food with me all the time. Mm. And so he keeps something in his pocket, you know, even as a millionaire who can afford anything that he could ever need or want or have somebody bring it to him. Um, it didn't matter. It was like his body needed to know that he would have that right there with him. Um, and so I think, you know, off offering them a choice to be able to choose even what, what that item is going to be, what makes you feel safe here. Yeah. Um, and getting to choose where is that going to be? Um, and that they get control over that. You know, if at any, t if, if at one point you decide, you know, you don't want a granola bar in that bag anymore, like you want goldfish crackers in there. Okay. Like that's something that like you get to be in control of. 
Yeah. Oh, that's great. And I think that, um, you know, that, that segues well into what my next question was, because, um, that seems really abnormal for families, you know, it, it, in neurotypical families, we're looking at kids and we're like, no, they need to know that they, they don't yes. need to just eat all the time. But as parents <laughs> of trauma, we have to kind of mourn the loss of normalcy a little bit. And that's something mm-hmm. I had to learn early on. I fought it for a long time. And then finally I was like, you know what, this is not our life. This will never be our life. And that's sad, but it is what it is. And I need to learn to be okay with that. And sometimes that looks like making choices for our family that other people might not I don't know, might look down upon, you know, mm-hmm. if, if you've kid wanted, if your kid wanted to play soccer, so you sign them up for soccer, you know, for a normal kid, you're like, no, that, that kid's going to play soccer until the season's over because you paid for it. You signed them up for it. But for someone with like ODD, maybe that choice looks different and that has to be okay. But again, that, that transfers into the next question I was going to ask, which is, you know, a lot of these things we are talking about happen inside the home and it happens without somebody looking at us. Um, and I mm-hmm. know that for ODD, you know, for, as a rad parent, the way that I go crazy is that nobody else sees what I see. And Mm. that is exhausting. And it's hard Mm -hmm. because people see me as the bad guy or that I'm being dramatic. But with ODD parents, I assume that that can look like a kid throwing an absolute hissy fit, like you're torturing them in public and you're getting all the looks, all the stares, or you're having to explain to them, this is why this kid is throwing a fit or not, or you're not having to explain it. So what are some tools that you could hand those parents of like, either it's okay that these people don't know everything or that they don't have Mm -hmm. the answers, but then also sometimes in a situation where you're having to explain your kid or give people better eyes to see your kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, my first thought there is just again, for parents that are in that place, um, like wanting to, wanting to honor that. And of course, like, goodness, I mean, um, even, even for my kiddos, you know, throwing a fit in Walmart because they want a toy or something like that. And those eyes on you. And, um, and so, you know, I think that, uh, at first just honoring what your body's doing in that, you know, and I think that we as parents and co- can so often tend to fight that and kind of go, okay, I've got to be the strong one here. I've got to keep it together. Um, or like, you know, I've got to kind of hold this in. And so, so people, um, don't see my responses there, but even just honoring what your body's doing there. Um, and this may sound silly, you know, but I often literally had a friend challenge me to do this at one point. And I thought there's no way I'm ever doing that. Um, and yet I find myself doing it now all the time, but just, knowing that like when I'm feeling frustrated or I I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling like I'm going to explode, um, like that my, that my body is doing that for a reason. Um, and that that's part of the survival system that God's created me with. And so even just acknowledging that and kind of going, okay, body, like, um, it makes sense that you're doing what you're doing here. Like, you know, you're, you're frustrated, your kid is screaming, people are staring at you. That makes sense. Um, and so kind of like literally talking to myself, um, in that place. And I kind of liken it to, you know, my three-year-old, if he, if he wants a popsicle say, you know, and I'm in the other room and he's like, Hey mom, like I want a popsicle. And I kind of don't pay attention to him or I ignore it. Um, what's he going to do in that place? He's going to get louder. Right. right? Um, up into the point where he's going to come in my room and he's going to grab my hand and trying to pull me to the freezer to get him a popsicle. Whereas if I, if I look at him, you know, and sometimes all he needs is just, uh, a reassurance that I see you. So if I look at him and go, Hey, Chase buddy, like, man, you really want a popsicle, don't you? 
yes. Okay. And like something in that signals his brain to calm down. I've been seen here. I've been heard here. And so, so sometimes that, that internal, that when our body is freaking out or like, you know, we're in that, in that place in public and those things are going on inside of us, sometimes literally just telling myself like, okay, thank you for trying to protect me here. I see what you're trying to do, like, but I'm okay. Um, and so kind of like grounding the inside of me in that place, like talking to that little, that little part of my brain that wants to pull the fire alarm, um, <laughs> you know, and, and run around like crazy and just honoring it for what it's trying to do instead of trying to tell it, hey, stop, um, or you need to slow down. And so I think that's my first thought there you know, for parents just to, um, even practice like organizing your own experience. This is what my parent is. This is what my body's trying to do. Um, it's trying to tell me that there is a threat here. People are looking at me, you know, and kind of talking to myself there. Um, you know, when I think about, uh, as far as, you know, you mentioned, like if, if there, if there is a time like where I have to explain it, right. Um, yeah. you know, I, th- I, I think kind of in that place, knowing that, uh, that, that people may not truly see that people may not truly see there. Um, and I hate that, you know, which I think is part of even why I love that picture of being able to talk to myself there, because if the other people around me can't show up for me there, I can, Yeah, like, like I can show it for myself in that place. Um, knowing that I see pieces of the puzzle or parts of the picture that they don't see. Um, I think that depending on the context, you know, that can be an opportunity to, to sit with people and educate them and help them understand, you know, um, kind of even as you said that Becca, you know, when she showed you, Hey, this is what's going on in your, in your kiddo's brain and how that shifts things. And so I think in the context of relationship, you know, there can be some opportunities there to, to hand people a new picture. Um, um, but I think even just, you know, if, Hey, you know, he's got a lot going on inside of his body right now and that's coming out and, we're trying, you know, we're, we're trying to, um, to love him there and meet him there in those places. But what you're seeing is just a picture of what's going on inside of him. Um, and just know that it makes sense. That's amazing. Like, but just, it, 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 it sounds so simple when you say it, but putting mm-hmm. words to that, where a lot of parents, you know, when their amygdala is going crazy, they mm-hmm. can't put words to that. They can't, yes. you know, they're embarrassed. They're, they're yes. freaking out. But to just to be able to say like, you're, you're just seeing part of this. This is, his, you know, this is something that we see a lot. There's a lot going on. And just those kinds of things that we don't think to see. We're just like, mm-hmm. oh, ha, ha, he's just, you know, you know, kids or whatever, or to like, you know, grab them like a football and run out the door. Those are, you know, (laughs) it happens. Yeah, exactly. So before we finish up, I wanted to ask you one more thing. And I know that, I know that kids with ODD, their trajectory can take a lot of different Mm -hmm. paths, but in this podcast, you know, we, we, I really try to, um, give parents an honest picture of what they're mm-hmm. dealing with. Cause I think a lot of the time we want to be like, Oh, you know, maybe it'll be fine. It could turn out great. Pray about it, which are all, that's great stuff. But we know that kids with ODT, be- kids with ODD become adults. They might not, um, these behaviors might not end. They might just look different as they grow older. So what are some of the, the more typical ways that you see kids with ODD growing up? Mm-hmm. Um, and so if I see, you know, with, without intervention, right. Um, Mm -hmm. or, or, 
you know, if that, that intervention isn't successful to the extent that it would mitigate some of that. Um, as kids walk forward, I see, you know, the, the behaviors and the severity of it increase, even just with their body size. Um, and so that's where you start to see, you know, a three-year-old who's sitting on the floor because they say their legs are broken um, is a lot different, right, than a 15-year-old sitting on the floor. Or, um, <laughs> you know, what, what would that 15-year-old respond in that place? And so um, I think that is where, you know, you can see those behaviors look more extreme, where they can look more violent, um, whether that is uh, bullying um, as far as physical aggression, verbal aggression, um, I think in some areas, that's where you start to see some gang violence and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and unfortunately, even here in Northwest Arkansas, um, I've seen a little bit of that. Um, and so you may see uh, criminal activity in those places, um, you know, whether that has to do with, uh, again, violence or, um, or really just, you know, anything where it feels like, hey, I'm in control here. And so that is where I tend to see more um, drug usage, um, things like that. I think that as, as kids can continue to progress into adulthood again, you know, like without intervention there, um, I think you, the, the path of violence is what's standing out to me the most, yeah. um, because that tends to be what I see the most, um, as far as if those needs are not met, um, and they're not handed those experiences earlier. And so, you know, domestic violence, um, at risk for, you know, repeating the same patterns that maybe they've experienced themselves um, with their own children, if they have children someday, um, even in the workplace, you know, that tends to be where you see individuals who um, maybe they have to be put on administrative leave because anger is coming out of them, mm-hmm. right? Or um, they, they're they really hard to work with, um, so they, they struggle to keep a job, mm-hmm. um, uh, struggle to... Um, whether that's, you know, as a, as a manager, um, again, you know, where their employees are, I can't handle this guy or, um, they, they don't make it to that place because they struggle to have somebody over them in authority that's asking them to complete a task or something like that. Um, and so, uh, I think, you know, in some extreme scenarios, it's where you see, uh, more destruction of property, um, as far as kind of moving into the teenage years on up into like early adulthood, setting fires, um, mm-hmm. things like that, uh, vandalism, um, where, uh, you know, I think particularly in like, again, teens on up is where you see, um, and maybe kids are running away or they're sneaking out at night, um, you know, doing things that, that could harm them or could harm others, um, uh, at times I'll see like sexual behavior, um, that's pretty erratic and kind of all over the place as well. Um, so, um, snapshot, right? Yeah. Confess. I don't like it coming out of my mouth, but that's the picture. No, but I think it's important to hear because I think as, as adoptive parents who are, who are the people that are intervening with these kids and their behaviors, it's easy to feel unseen there and isolated mm-hmm. and like, what we're doing doesn't matter or it's not going to change anything because we don't see those little changes every day. We just see they're still throwing fits two years later or they're still, mm-hmm. you know, I'm still having to hold them down or just whatever. And so I ask those things to show people like this, mm-hmm. this is what it, their lives could look like without intervention. So what you're doing mm-hmm. matters and not mm-hmm. to shame them, like you better get it together and figure out how to help this kid now, because this is what could happen. But also to listen to what you had said before, just to honor those feelings and to take care of yourself 
yourself there as well and to say like I'm doing something really hard I am doing kingdom mm-hmm. work here and without my without you know Jesus's intervention through me this kid's life could look completely different, like the things that you just said. And, um, mm-hmm. and so just to honor those little changes, just to honor that what you're doing on a day-to-day basis, that you're showing up for this kid, that you're trying to understand this kid that matters and it mm-hmm. is going to make a difference in their lives. So I know that it's hard to talk about those things and say like, you know, this is the worst case scenario, but it, I don't know. It, it, um, it's really sad that the evil in the world can turn innocent children into those things. Mm -hmm. But Jesus uses people like us to, um, I don't know, to, to, to stop that trajectory. And I, I love that. So, Mm -hmm. um, on that note, if you had uh, just one final thing, if you had to tell people who are not dealing with ODD in their home, what's the one thing you wish they knew about it? Hmm. Um, I think that it makes sense. Okay. And so just, you know, if you see, uh, you see other kids or you, you know, you're out in public and you see, um, something that doesn't make sense to you, you know, just kind of wanting to hand you a different set of lenses in the sense that, um, somewhere in there, it makes sense. Um, and somewhere in there, there's a kiddo with pain um, or with fear and that that's what your eyeballs are seeing. Um, and so just looking at uh, those families, those parents, those kids with gray eyes, um, and knowing that their story makes sense there. Yep. Mm, good stuff. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for joining us. And, um, I don't know, just educating us a little bit on something that a lot of people don't see all the time, but now we know more. So thank you so, so much. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to the adoptive mom podcast. I hope you found encouragement here. I need you to know that you are enough and you're doing a great job. We are all in this together and I am over here cheering you on. Don't forget to check out show notes for this episode and other resources at theadoptivemompodcast.com. Thanks for joining us.